Hi, everybody. It is the 4th of August, 2022, and it is time, as I turn this off very clearly, it is time for episode 127, I believe, of my live chat. My name is Luke Thomas. Thank you so much for joining me. Let's put some graphics on the screen, shall we? Hi. Please subscribe if you're watching on YouTube. If you're listening on the podcast platform, just give us a, uh, a nice review on whatever podcast platform that may be. Let's see. On the docket today, I saw some stuff about Charles Oliveira. I even saw some Brock Lesnar stuff. There is, of course, the fight night this weekend, but it is a... Well, you know, it's the standard argument that we always get into, which is, no, I cannot fortune tell and give you a great assessment of how the fights might go. The entire fight card might be really fun. But there are no names on there, or very few. Jamal Hill is in the main event against Thiago Santos is pretty good. There's a couple of the ones down the list, but you know... In general, not a card that would pull you in from the outset. It may be good after the fact, but, um, you know, the most important fights in MMA, let's put it that way, they're not happening on that card. I can, I can tell you that very clearly. So, if you have any questions about it, we can get to it, because I have to talk about it for tomorrow's MK. But really, whatever's on your mind. By the way, tomorrow, um, the new Predator movie comes out called Prey. I believe it's going to be a Hulu exclusive. So I'm looking forward to seeing that. Their early reviews are good. They are good. So I am cautiously optimistic it'll be better than the new Thor. But, you know, it's not that hard to be better than the new Thor because the new Thor is a complete piece of shit movie for simpletons. All right. So with that out of the way, uh, we go for about an hour here. And then if you want, you know, certainly under no obligation, but if you'd like to put in a donation, I'll take a look at those at the end of the hour, and then we'll try to do like a lightning round at the very, very, very end of this. We'll go for roughly about an hour and a half total. All right, without further ado, let's get going. And we're back. All right. So let's pull up the questions if we can very quickly. Um, all right, here we go. And there's the picture I put up for the community thread this week. I, I put a comment about it. It's the uh, UFC 209 Media Day. You might recall that was, I think, like the third attempt or whatever attempt number it was to get Habib to fight Tony. That was going to be the, uh, that was going to be, I think, the co-main because it was, it was Stephen Thompson versus um, sorry, it was Woodley versus Thompson 2 as the main event, and I think Habib versus Ferguson as the co-main. But then this is the whole Tiramisu incident. I'll never forget at that press, excuse me, at that media day, I will never forget interviewing Habib and then seeing how bad his cotton mouth was. He had he had noticeably really really bad cotton mouth. Um, that's usually a bad sign, right? So, and in the end, it ended up being one. Didn't matter for his career ultimately, I suppose, but that was a bad day. And I, had to, I remember I found out on the air that Friday, I think at the either that Thursday or that Friday at the um, when I was like doing my show, like just before the weigh-ins. I think this was pre-morning weigh-ins. I can't remember exactly the full timeline. Maybe it was that Thursday. But either way, I was on the air when I found out, and I was like, Jesus Christ, you got to be kidding me! No, it happened. All right. Now, as a reminder, we did a live chat earlier in the week, so it wasn't like this. I'm not going to count that as part of the series of the Thursday versions, 
But I think after the big pay-per-views, it might make sense to do a special one, especially because I, even with extra credit and even with MK, I don't often get to a lot of the things I want to get to. So um, it's a good opportunity to sort of really fill the gaps. We may start doing that. All right. First things first. Uh, Luke, how do you feel about video games? I don't have a strong opinion. Do you respect them as a creative medium for storytelling? Sure. You've mentioned many times before your admiration for Kurosawa films, have you seen anything like Ghost of Tsushima, which was heavily inspired by and even uh, has a dedicated Kurosawa game mode? I am vaguely aware of it. I, I've not gone into great detail. I mostly just don't have time to play games in that way. Um, even when I was a kid, though, like the sort of storytelling games in that way, like Legends of Zelda, a Legend of Zelda was not wasn't my favorite. I, I liked, I liked. I guess there's like a really, really, really very basic way. Even Mario kind of has a bit of a story to it. It's, it could be the most simple kind, but um, technically there is one. You know, I like those games just fine, but. Gaming in that in that way just requires a certain love for it or a time commitment that in either case I don't really have. But I'm not here to talk poorly about something I don't know much about. And certainly a lot of people that I know who have otherwise similar interests or backgrounds, they do in fact like gaming. Um, I'm not, again, I don't, I don't know enough about this game or gaming in general to give you an assessment of like its creative, uh, it's, you know, whether it's a good medium for storytelling or not. But it certainly seems that way. It certainly seems that way. So... If people like it, great. If not, that's cool too. Um, I, I wish I had a, you know, I wish there were 48 hours in the day. I'd give it probably more of a try, but there's not. Uh, good question. Hey, Luke, it's been a couple of weeks, but I want to have your opinion on Sean Strickland's performance against Pereira. I know you have great respect for Eric Nixick, so is he responsible for the poor strategy going into the fight? I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, I don't know. I mean, I don't know exactly what they agreed to or what they didn't agree to. I have a very hard time believing that Nixick recommended what he did. Um, there might have been parts he recommended, or I mean, you got. I mean, these relationships are complex. Like, this is not the MMA fighter coach relationship. There probably are cases where it's like the American football coach relationship, where you know, let's say they bring someone in off the bench. Um, or not even off the bench, but like, you know, coach tells you you're going to be the wide receiver in this position. You have a very specific assignment in that role, depending on what play is called, right? You have to run whatever the route is and you have to create separation from the defender and you have to, you have to be at a certain place for the catch for it all to work. Like all of these things that you have to do exactly what the play calls for. Really your success as an athlete in that case is, Sometimes adaptability, if the play falls through or if it's, you know, the guy throws it high and you're able to make a grab, like, you know, bring athletic skills to bear. But there's a real clear, for the most part, a clear assignment that goes into all of these things. And if you're a quarterback, you have an assignment. You have to go through your progressions, the whole nine yards. And so you're graded on your ability to do what the either offensive or defensive coordinator does for play, whoever's calling the plays, right? That's not exactly how the MMA fighter slash coach relationship works. I mean, I think it's a lot more collaborative. Um, I'm sure there are some that, like, the coach tells them you're going to do X, Y, Z, go do it. A lot of it is more, um, what's a better, like, what's a better, 
Mm, I, I'm not sure what a what a team sport analogy I could go to, but suffice to say, I'm gonna guess. I'm gonna guess that they had a game plan, probably that Sean was comfortable with, that Eric was comfortable with, that probably wasn't what was executed there. Um, I feel like that that seemed to me like Sean Strickland trying to fight him a way that, for whatever reasons he may have, felt comfortable to him. And that was probably not what was recommended. That just wouldn't make sense. It could be true, certainly. Wouldn't really make sense for me, knowing how I understand how he assesses risk, manages it, really doesn't run from it, but doesn't... um, doesn't invite it in that way. That's just not a Nixit game plan. Like, when have you ever seen him? I know he's got some guys out there like 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 Soriano who are very four-driven, hard-nosed strikers, do or die in that way. But, like, you know, if he had his druthers, so to speak, I just don't think he'd come up with that game plan, which isn't to say he couldn't come up with a wrong game plan. Everyone's going to be fallible in that way. But, no, I don't – I don't buy that. I think a lot of times these guys do what they want to do, and the coach kind of tries to steer them in a direction that's more positive or elevate their strengths while trying to minimize their weaknesses, and then the fighter has to go and execute it. Or it can be the case that the fighter gets a really bad game plan, tries to execute it in fealty to the coach, and the coach fucks it all up. All of these different scenarios are in play, but just knowing what you know about him, knowing what I know about him, and the kinds of game plans he comes up with, I'd be very surprised if that was the one he did. That's my personal assessment. I'd be very surprised if that was like, yeah, just walk forward in this way, um, <laughs> you know, hands by your by your ribs. I don't buy that. I don't buy that. I think Sean kind of got caught up in the moment and probably deviated from what they had agreed to. That seems to me much more likely. And, you know, that's his right. He like he like you pay the coach, you know, like they work for you. So ultimately it is your choice. Uh for for better or for worse. And again, sometimes people are going to ignore their coach and have a better decision. I don't I don't I don't think that's the case here. And by the way, that doesn't mean he won't come up with some again, I'll re- re- reiterate this. Everyone is going to make mistakes. I am, you are, all of us. Any coach is going to come up with a bad game plan eventually too, but that one seems for that to be his game plan, that seems wildly uncharacteristic. Possible, but seems unlikely. Stylistically, Ankalaev seems like a bad matchup for Yuri Prohachka. Do you think Ankalaev follows a similar game plan to Reyes, but with more takedowns? It seems even with Ankalaev's power and timing, that standing for too long with Yuri over time might be dangerous. What do you see as the most realistic path for victory? For Yuri in this case. I don't know about Yuri, but dude, Ankalaev is a bad matchup for everybody. When you can make, when you have well rounded ability, when you're athletic, not a lot of miles on you, young, and um, you make very good decisions about how to approach whatever the various challenges in front of you. Yeah, dude, like you're a bad matchup for everybody. He's a he's not a bad matchup for Yuri. He's a bad matchup for anybody in those. Again, you know, I know realize he lost to Paul Craig because in that point he wasn't making great decisions. Paul Craig's also a little sneaky in that way, but you know, in general, in general, dude, he like a guy like a guy who just makes good decisions 
and is reasonably athletic and has reasonably well-rounded ability, that's going to be a tough guy to beat. It's going to be a tough guy to beat. Um, for Prohachka, there's a lot of things. Could he get wild and land something on Ankalaev? Yes. Could Ankalaev be somewhat reserved to the point where he lands more but gets basically, from a from a impact standpoint, gets outstruck over the course of five rounds or three rounds enough for to him to get a, a judge's nod or ultimately put his lights up? Those are possible. Those are possible. Seems to me, though, that like when you're wild in the way that Yuri is and you've got a guy as smart and as disciplined as Ankalaev is, he's going to wait for his opening and pop him. You know, that's like a we like if you're all the guys that Yuri would want to face, you would want someone that accommodates you. You want someone that kind of tries to fight fire with fire a little bit. Ankalaev doesn't seem that guy. Ankalaev seems like the kind of guy to wait for a big mistake and then go. Not the kind of guy who's going to try to bear down on that moment with you. That doesn't seem like Ankalaev at all. Again, I'm going to do offense on my terms, not your terms. A lot of guys decide that they want to try and meet Yuri in a way where they're doing offense on his terms, but yet they can somehow do better. And in some, and for long stretches, they might. But to the point you raised, if you do it on his terms, you're going to get caught. You can't just be doing your normal game. You have to kind of do a game that allows this dude to walk into all the mistakes that he makes and then pop him. It requires a good judgment of distance. It requires great timing. And it requires good good um, strike or punch selection, all of which Ankalaev has in spades. Ankalaev is a very bad matchup for Yuri. Now again, Yuri is so crazy and so durable, and he's athletic as shit himself. You know, <laughs> I mean, a lot of crazy things can happen, to be clear. And by the way, you're talking about takedowns, since that's part of the question. Could takedowns factor in as a role that Ankalaev mixes in as a way to mitigate risk? Yes, it's what defined the last big chapter of St. Pierre's career. Wrestling as a way to mitigate risk. That seems very likely as well. And it's not like Ankalaev, excuse me, it's not like um, Prohachka does like a ton of great defense underneath in terms of avoiding damage. Yeah, that could that could fit all of that. Like his unique vulnerabilities, Ankalaev's going to know them and he's going to have a game plan to go after them specifically. But like a guy who is just as mistake-free typically as Ankalaev is, it's a, he's a hard dude to beat. Very, very, very difficult. That's going to be a tough assignment. But, of course, he has to get through Blahovich and everything else. So, you know. Or, actually, who the hell knows what UFC is going to do. They may not go that direction at all, but we'll see. Uh, Luke, last week leading up to the main event of UFC 277, UNBC discussed champs who lost their belt and won it back in the immediate rematch. Could Stipe be considered a technicality to fall under this category? While, of course, DC fought Derek Lewis, Stipe did technically win the belt back in his next fight after losing it. Yes. And that's sort of... T and well, I w actually, it would not be technical because the technical way would be the immediate rematch. But in the spirit of the question... Since that was the rematch for Stipe and it wasn't for DC, it doesn't fit the criteria. But in the in the spirit of what you're asking, is it basically the same thing? Yeah, basically. Basically. I've been listening to your live chats for a few years now and I gather you like good food. I wish. Do you do much cooking yourself? And if so, do you have a favorite kitchen tool? I don't do a ton of cooking, unfortunately. Um, I will say this, though. 
for all the donks out there, um, for people who need to lose weight, like everyone's going to do it their own way. That's fine. Do whatever makes sense for you. But I'll say that um, people who are like inclined to be in the kitchen, I think sometimes we think, you know, oh, they just want to cook the most gluttonous stuff imaginable. But I would say is like people who have an affinity for that, I think in general are going to be better suited for weight loss. Should that be like a necessary goal and should they understand exactly how weight loss takes place? In other words, like food prep, and I don't just mean like, oh, on Sundays I cook a shitload of, you know, ground turkey and a shitload of broccoli and a shitload of brown rice and I just make a bunch of meals for the week. That's not really, I mean, that's that's food prep. That's not really cooking per se. I mean, like people who can understand making something delicious yet still healthy or whatever. To the extent you can control the process by which your food gets made and to the extent that you like that process, it will aid you ultimately as you find a new healthier path. Um, I think one of the challenges that I faced is that I, I don't really have much time or inclination for it. And so as a consequence, it was, I used to cook in my 20s back when I kind of wanted to get good at it. And there was like, you know, there's a few things I can make okay, but I mostly let it go in the last 10 years or so. And uh, um, having to recapture some of those skills for other life goals turned out that like there's some value to it beyond just, you know, making the ability to make delicious food. Yeah, thoughts on the uh, Sue Lewis Robinson only giving Deshaun Watson a six-game suspension after she agreed with the NFL investigation that Watson most likely acted in a predatory way while seeking massages. Funny how media is calling for Roger Goodell to get involved after criticizing his lack of punishment or uh, too severe punishments in previous years. Well, I mean, they railroaded Josh Gordon's career over marijuana. And I know what everyone's going to say. It's like, okay, but he had multiple chances and he kept fucking it up, which is true. But it's like fucking up what exactly? Like, whose life was he fucking up? Whose team was he fucking up? Um, and which isn't to say he doesn't have some kind of potential addiction issue or some other larger issue in his life that is worthy of examination. But to the extent that the NFL needed to railroad this guy's career in the way that they did because of multiple... And, you know, Rick and uh, was it Ricky Williams before him as well? All of these things, there's been a massive culture change since then. Someone... It was the... There's a Twitter, uh, Twitter um, account called NFL memes and they put out something where showing all these guys who had in theory much worse uh acts sorry sorry much less severe acts of malfeasance or whatever and then much tougher punishment one of them was Vontez Burfecht who you know I mean the number of illegal hits the guy made in his career is extraordinary so what I would say is discounting the fact that I thought his punishments were relatively just there's a bunch of other ones on there where this, you know, six games for, you know, four games for, depending on your perspective, performance-enhancing drugs or guys betting on games and losing a season, which in our, we, you know, in our sport, people just openly admit that they bet on fights even when they're in the midst of them. No one seems to bat an eye. There's no rule about it. And I don't know how much people care generally in the NFL anyway about that sort of thing. All kinds of acts that maybe you wouldn't necessarily want to allow, but for far less punishment. I mean, I think they his signing bonus, I think, was untouched. And his salary, they're going to take roughly 350 k from, which ends up being a tiny fraction of another, either 45 or $47 million that he's owed annually on the deal. I mean, you know, and remember, like, his, there's, like, evidence from the New York Times to indicate that his old team knew about it uh, and in sort of acted in a way both to 
cover it up and also to facilitate certain parts of it. Like this totally fucked up system and he gets six games for it. It's just comical. It's comical. It's truly comical. And you might be like, well, what's the difference between this and UFC stuff? These guys are employees. They have a union. You know, if you're an employee, like there's this whole, yes, you have more protections and you get more rights and there's lots of benefits that come with it. But on the other side, there's a lot more responsibility. Yeah, your your employer absolutely can go after you for conduct detrimental, to use the term. Um, and so now Goodell is it's like basically the NFL appealing to the NFL in a sort of a technical way of thinking about it. Um, I don't really know what's going to happen, but you know, we're talking nearly 30 women who complained about predatory behavior. Nearly 30. Nearly 30 that complained about um, inappropriate or otherwise predatory behavior that there is an admission of predatory behavior in the findings. And he got half, not even half a season, he got a third, basically, of the season. It's a fucking, I mean, <laughs> this, it's, 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 you get to a point where, like, you are still kind of shocked by it all, you know? Um, it's not that I'm not shocked, but I, I said this before, and it really is true, Short of the most heinous crimes, like truly the most. I mean, even then it takes a while. Like for with a guy like Jerry Sandusky who got away with abuse for decades, right? For decades. Or Larry Nasser who got away with abuse for years. Uh, we don't punish elites in this country. Not really. Not really. And that, that, that includes superstar athletes a lot of times. Now, now there can be cases where as I just mentioned, where there is like this over punishment, but that's, that's sort of like, um, almost like virtue signaling. It's almost like, yeah, we'll over punish those things. So like we can have a track record of saying we do something, but when it actually comes to something that matters, uh, we, and you know, um, in a way where we would never want to scale significant punishments for sexual abuse. Cause God only knows what that would do to the ability to run a league. Um, then you have these kinds of sort of discipline for show, but we don't really punish powerful people in this country. We don't, we don't punish people who commit, except for like, you know, the most egregious Bernie Madoffs. There's all kinds of much more common white collar theft. We don't really punish. We don't really punish political actors unless it's like true, true depravity or, you know, they're caught completely dead to rights. You know, we might over scrutinize and attack the lives of celebrities, but in terms of like punishing for real big problems, we just don't really do it. We don't really do it. We do it a little bit. We go overboard in easier ways, but in a- appropriate apportion justice where it's supposed to go, um, your ability to escape it the higher you climb is not. It's not. A, it's not an accident. Like our understanding of looking around and seeing how the, it seems like, how can it be that like rich people and, and powerful people and celebrity people get away with it? They get away with it because um, those that's the society we've chosen to create. Um, how did it take you know decades slash years to get R. Kelly ultimately? It's because powerful people who are rich, who are well-connected can uh, really create a system of silence, of complicity, of avoidance of mitigation and everything in between to engage in despicable uh, behavior and even the U oh, sorry even the UFC excuse me even the NFL in this particular case is like kind of like Jesus really even they want to do something about it which I understand 
because it's you know we're talking about thirty women. This dude uh, potentially, or potentially even more than that, that he um, acted either inappropriately towards or outright, you know, potentially even committed a crime. I don't, and I realize it hasn't gotten to that, but um, we don't do anything about it anymore. Not much, or or it takes us a very, 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 very long time to get to it. I mean, dude, the. Browns had to, I think, or I think the Browns mandated this. Maybe Sue Lewis Robinson's report mandated this, but it's now mandated if he has to get like sports massages, it has to happen in house at the, in the by the team's um, physios. <laughs> like it's in writing, he's not allowed to do it anywhere else under anyone else's supervision at any point. It has to happen right there, my guy. If that has to get written into a contract, um. You know, it's a fairly big tell. It's a fairly big tell. I find that I have lost, I, I frankly have lost uh, most, not complete, I have lost most hope in this country that we will do anything about uh, rich and powerful people committing crimes or otherwise engaging in um, horrible behavior. I don't. I just don't think we'll, we'll do anything about it in the short term. Maybe over the long term, that's it. I think I think as a country we've largely erected a system that insulates them, and that we don't really care. Like our Browns fans going to really boycott the games, and I grant that Deshaun Watson is not the Browns, but it's what it creates a a level of complication there about how you support the team versus that. But the team's all in on Deshaun Watson, so like maybe he's not so distinct. Are they really going to get hurt from it if he goes out there and balls in Game Seven? The whole shit goes away. This is who we are. We are the baddies. Look, do you think the meteoric popularity of MMA is going to produce a handful of competing organizations on par with UFC? Meteoric popularity? What the fuck are you talking about? Or do you think the UFC brand will always remain the undisputed champion? Well, as long as uh, they're a monopsony, sure. You know, part of the problem, there's no barriers to getting a license, right? There's no barriers to that in terms of barriers to entry to the market. To getting a promoter's license. I'm sweating like a horn church. I came from the gym, so my body is uh, pathetic, but also cooling down. Uh, I'm going to take this off for a second because it actually makes me a little bit hotter. Um, I think that MMA has a lo- certainly a levels to go in terms of popularity as it relates to um, scale. But in terms of like the size that events can go and be... How many more times are we going to see something that can do 2 million buys? Like, what right now on the horizon could they make? And I don't mean like some bullshit like Nick Diaz versus Canelo. I mean like, what fight could they make with Canelo right now that could do 2 million buys? What fight could they make right now with Nate that could do 2 million buys? You might be able to come up with one or two, but there's not many. Even the even a Connor trilogy, I don't know if that does two. In fact, I'm pretty sure that it doesn't. Okay, so then what would you do to get four or five million buys? We've only had two of them get close. We've never actually even had five million buys. The point I'm trying to make is there's different ways to understand MMA's growth. Growth as it relates to becoming more popular, let's say, in Spanish-speaking Latin America. Growth as to like a resuscitation of the market in Canada. Growth as to the potential in China. Now, that one could be a game-changer depending on how it goes, but there's no guarantees there either. Growth as it relates to... All different parts of the world and its expansion and its adoption. All of that is real and possible growth into the women's side of the game. 
or imagine a world where we had as many stacked women's divisions as we did in the men's side, which we currently do not. Um, that kind of thing I think is possible. But in terms of like meteoric popularity, I don't know what you mean by that. I think in terms of popularity, you've got what you're basically going to get, at least in whatever developed domestic market you're in. Now, if you're in an undeveloped market, if you're watching this in China and you're wondering what MMA is going to be like in five to 10 years, all right, that could be a potential game changer. But here in the U.S., UFC is about as popular as it's going to be. Someone can come along, like at the next Ronda Rousey, be able to sell 3 million pay-per-view buys. That's real possible. But all of that, we have a kind of a frame for understanding. Popularity, to me, seems like a lot of different things. But one way to understand it is, what's the ultimate potential the market could bear? Like, how popular could it be on a given night? Right? You're already on ESPN. You already have relative to what you used to have, significantly more blue chip sponsors. You already have infrastructure, right? Where they've got their own um, essentially arena and the facility to create content. You've got your own IP. You've got your own IP content libraries. You've got a network of resources in terms of uh, event event planning and management and you know relationships with various venues. Like there's just not a lot of more room to grow more popular. It can grow more popular in terms of its worldwide appeal and then specifically in very underdeveloped markets. But hitting a place where like, you know, routinely MMA is getting what, for example, in this country, what NFL football games, which is anywhere from, you know, 18 to 30 plus million per game on a given Sunday, you know, this is, well, again, okay, if they got rid of pay-per-view, potentially that would be possible in very limited circumstances. But even if it wasn't on pay-per-view, do I think that an MMA fight could do 30 million views on on television? I'd be very skeptical of that. So in that sense, we kind of already know what a popular MMA market looks like. What I do think is interesting to think about is, again, what's it going to look like in China? What happens as Spanish-speaking Latin America blows up? What happened about parts of Europe and France, for example? France is a, a combat sports home in many ways and has a very underdeveloped MMA scene by virtue of their relative tardiness in adopting it. But like... The U.S. is the biggest, well, I guess the China is, might have something to say about this, but in terms of a sports market, you know, the NBA is here, the NHL is here, the NFL is here, the MLB is here, UFC is a global company, but it is based here. Dude, this is a place, and like you know, collegiate sports are here and women's sports are here. Like, this is a place with a very popular sporting market. Look at how big it can get. It can get really big. It can get really, really big. It certainly is possible. What would happen in a way that would make us think that I could get like two or three X that? I could never imagine that. That seems short of something in China being transformative in ways that is hard to understand at this point. That seems to me very unlikely. Uh, A few weeks ago, you spoke about the whitewashing in MMA space, which I don't entirely disagree with, and the lack of proper marketing to penetrate different ethnic markets. And you brought up the boxing example of exceptionally diverse groups. My question to you would be, uh, would be that considering the extreme divide that boxing and MMA fans have had for many years, which has somewhat begun to soften, that's true, and how ingrained uh, boxing is as an international multi-generational sport for black and Latino communities, do you think that the bias against MMA as a sport, throwback to human cockfighting, uh, from the boxing side, could be driving a large part of the lack of diversity within the MMA space, or is there a different explanation for it? Well, what I would say is uh, there's a weird... First of all, we need more studies to see exactly what the MMA fan base looks like. 
it does seem anecdotally that it is overwhelmingly one dominant group in terms of what the fan base is, but you know, some understanding of this by virtue of studies would be nice. That and and uh, economic studies too about like what kind of market they occupy, what does the average UFC fan make, what does the average UFC fan in terms of like not your not my guess, not your guess, what does a study say? Average UFC fan spends per month, both in terms of time and dollars, and all the stuff needs to be measured. What I would say is, I don't think it's necessarily from their love of boxing that drives a wedge between them and the MMA space. Because here's the reality: when I came into the sport, you could count the number of like black fighters on one hand. You know, it's like Dean Thomas, Kevin Randleman. You know, it was. Um, you know, Mike Van Arsdale was out there. This is pre Rashad Evans and stuff like that in the early days. There just weren't that many. Mark Weir was a was a, a European guy who uh, obviously of um, African descent. You know, you could count them on your hand. Um, who was the wolf, the left-handed guy? He had a number of good uh, knockouts, but it, it just wasn't that many. I would say that it's grown enormously among the fighting base, a real internationalization, and then a diversification. And by, by, the, by the way, I want to be clear about this. This is not me doing some bullshit political like we need diversification because that's you know if we don't then we're all fucking bigots that's not what i mean like just think about it logically all of these different groups are going to have great athletes all of these different groups are going to have people situated to do really great fighting if you want a dynamic product you would want to tap into as much of that as possible so let me just appeal to you merely if i can there'll be other ways you would want it but for no if for no other reason then what you cared about is quality MMA. Getting to the root of all the different communities would be really important. More to the point, and this is the thing I bring up constantly, if you have black and Latino communities who you know are just rock-ribbed fight fans, it seems like getting them to like another combat sport, maybe that's actually more difficult than I realize, but I don't know, that shouldn't be, I'm not going to say it's not difficult because it is, but that should be doable. Not immediately, but over time. Over time, that should be doable. These are people that develop communities, tradition, identity, celebration around fighting. I mean, that's usually a, something that's very hard to teach to people who are not inclined towards fighting. We've already got that covered in large part with a lot of these different communities. We just have to get them to transfer it to something a little bit more to our liking. I think that is a generational thing, but I think it can happen. So I don't, I don't believe that it's... Um, I don't believe that it's driven in that way. Uh, and again, the in terms of the who comp, who, let's you know take the United States who comprises the fighting base, like the diversification of the fighters themselves. There's been a massive change over time, a, a very welcome one. Good, I'm all, I'm happy for it. Like great. Uh, I think to me the the lagging indicator is the audience. That's the interesting part. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with who you are. Like, hey. Seems like the UFC taught a generation of, you know, white dudes in their teens and 20s to love fighting in a way that perhaps boxing didn't. Okay, nothing wrong with that. But I'm just saying, if you want a more dynamic sport and um, and you just look at where the talent pool is and where the rock-ribbed fight fan communities are, there just seems to me a ton of unexplored territory here. Uh you know, and when the fighters are beginning, you begin to see a lot more different types and different, you know, uh, weight classes and, you know, all different kinds of stuff. It tells you like, okay, like there's interest from on the participatory side that shows how much available talent is out there. 
I think I think the thing that to me is kind of interesting is is the fan base changing some. It does seem like, but still heavily concentrated in one direction. That's all. Uh, someone's going. What's Gucci? Is this a thing that young people say? Because if they do, they should stop saying it. Okay. All right. Um, how has Oliveira's striking become so deadly? He manages to create a war of attrition even with more technical strikers like Poirier. Is there a solution to this? B, how transferable is Volkanovski's short man game slash distance closing techniques to the 155 division? Would his grappling defense hold up against the likes of Ortega, excuse me, uh, uh, of Oliveira and Islam considering he almost was tapped out by Ortega? Would the inside leg kick leave him vulnerable to single legs? Bonus. That's a crazy one. Okay. How has Oliveira's striking become so deadly? Um, well, this would require partly, I have an answer for you, but partly I would like to do a longer look at this to get a much better answer. But in looking at some of his more recent performances, I was going through the Gaethje one today. Um, you know, listen, here's the truth about his game. Like defensively, he's there to be hit. You know, when we talk about how good of a striker is, again, what does that mean? Is he a very good defensive striker? Well, he doesn't have terrible defense. There are times where I've seen his hand being up save him when someone's firing a left hook. Okay, so that's good. But, like, my man's hittable. He's hittable, and he gets dropped a lot. Now, sometimes he falls to his back as a way to, like, aid comfort, but it's usually after someone landed a big shot on him. It's not like his defense is ironclad. It's not. So when we talk about how good he is, I think he's got some decent defense. I, I, I would not say striking defense is a strong suit for him. What I do think is true is how he creates and layers threats in the striking department. First of all, in terms of the offensive side of things, he's cleaned up a lot. His movement is much smaller, which is good, right? He doesn't take huge steps back. He takes a couple steps, like tiny steps back when he's exiting the pocket, so punches are in front, but it, you know, it's very efficient. His punching mechanics are much more efficient. His timing has gotten really good. He punches often sometimes and strikes sometimes in combination. Um, he's got good leg kicks. Um, he can fight at long range and short range. He's got a willingness to stand in the pocket, which, again, there are, are trade-offs defensively associated with that, but it brings to life so many parts of his game. So, like, part of it is he just cleaned up a lot, a lot. Um, while I do think there's some defensive issues, the other part is he connects a lot of different dimensions. So he'll go to the body and guys will lean over and then he'll go and try to grab the headlock for a front headlock series or whatever or a snap down and people are retreating and then when they retreat, he pops them on the exit. You know, so he combines the clinch, the ability to get to the clinch. He'll reach for the hands constantly. You guys notice that? He'll reach for the hands constantly and then he'll use it to get to the clinch. So he's combining all of these like assertive transition different properties all together in this sort of like accordion way where at times there's a bunch going on at times it's all spread out but it's all still kind of connected and it just creates a lot of competing threats that are very very hard to manage I think in fact because he layers his offense so much that's actually why there's not enough enough detail for defense now sometimes he just gets hit in mid-range because he just doesn't have great defense but I think the other part is like dude he puts himself in harm's way when he layers these striking threats um and it just becomes a lot to handle. So when we talk about how good he is as a striker, we have to talk about, one, the defense is really not there, perhaps intentionally, but it's not there in, 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 as much as it could be. And two, I think when you say good striker, 
while he does have much cleaned up or very cleaned up motion mechanics, shot selection, um, I mean, you know, no, not a lot of wasted movement. A lot of it comes from his ability to uh, navigate distance, to have good striking uh, in places where it's easy to go to good wrestling or for him to retreat to jujitsu, for him to cycle threats together and stack them on top of one another. Like, again, the, the, the nucleus of his game is not long range or the back. It's the clinch. Everything comes from there, really. I mean, he might do some really great damage and finish from the... He'll do good damage at, you know, mid-range and then finish from the back. But the nucleus of it all and what ties his game together, it's like the clinch is really what it's at. Um, so when I think about, like, how, like you know, just think about how he wins fights and, like, what he does well that stands out to you and the pieces that stand out to me is... And by the way, it's a lot of pressure. You know, he's putting a lot of forward pressure into it. Like, when he's going forward, man, he's a handful. But it's not like he's doing 25 minutes of striking and he's barely getting touched, you know. Like, this is what I mean about Izzy. Like, okay, if it's boring for you, it's boring for you. I'm not here to relitigate the debate. But are you going to really argue he gets hit a lot? Are you going to argue he really gets hit a lot? I don't think you should argue that. You just can't. You can't really argue he gets hit a lot. Robert Whitaker did a decent job of popping his head back. On occasion, um, and that was close, but he doesn't get hit a lot. This is what I mean. Like that's a much more comprehensive understanding of striking and ability to master it. Now you could also say, well, Charles is much more exciting, and I like his fights much better. Fine, fine. I, this is that's not what this is. But I think about what makes him great is um, again cleaned up mechanics, shot selection, much better distance management, um, much bigger for the weight class, obviously. Uh, still poor, not poor, still lacking defense in certain contexts. Some of it might be intentional. Stacking threats together, combined everything with the clinch, forward pressure, all of those things together really make him a dynamic threat. Like the one I posted today on Twitter where he he throws a right hand into clinch, then I think he lands another one, and then they separate. And as they separate, you can see, it's just, I mean, it's just brilliant timing. Let me pull it up here real quick. I want to see this just for my own curiosity's sake. I'm going to pull this. Let's see. What does he do here? So, so they're in the clinch. He has a left-handed collar tie. Gaethje is standing uh, same way, left foot in front, right foot in the back. To escape the collar tie, he takes his left foot back. And before he can land it, Oliveira, because now, you know, as Gaethje is escaping the clinch, his hands are down. Before his left foot even lands, he lands a right hand, and then Gaethje goes tumbling. So he split his timing, he waited until he was unstable, and he threw a really hard punch that he really leaned into as a consequence. That is just sensational awareness, aided by very good timing. That's what I mean. And then he goes and takes his back. Right, he he has learned how to marry all of this together very very rapidly, um, or at least to create rapid attacks, I should say. Um, but like you know, does he get hit a lot on the field? What are his numbers? Let's actually look that up very quickly. I'm gonna guess. I'm gonna guess that his strikes absorbed per minute are well above three and potentially above four. Let's see. Charles Oliveira's numbers: strikes landed and absorbed per minute. Yeah. Uh, not 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 at four, not at four, but I was right. Strikes absorbed per well, mostly right. Strikes absorbed per minute three point one eight. A little lower than I than I had potentially thought, but still above three. Still above three. Striking defense fifty two percent. 
which is not bad in and of itself. Strikes landed per minute, 3.53, so he has a positive differential, but not a very high one. Uh, but, Jesus Christ, submission average per 15 minutes is 3. I don't think I've ever seen that before. Good Lord. That's very high. Most guys are, like, less than 1. <laughs> He's at 3. That's really, really high. But that's, that's what I think makes his striking so excellent. It's all those things there. With the note that his striking defense is not a savior for him. I don't know if people really care about the whole Barcelona thing. I'll just do this very quickly. I don't know if you all have seen this. But basically, like, they're mortgaging the, like, their, a, a number of things, including but not limited to their broadcast rights, to pay for all these players. And now there is some inconsistency between what La Liga says they can reasonably expect from this and what Barcelona says that this amount generates, in which case they may not be able to register players that they have ostensibly otherwise signed. It is like someone was asking me, like, oh, you're just mad. Aren't you just mad? Aren't you just salty that that Barcelona had like a uh, tremendous, you know, haul of players in the offseason? And it's like, well, they did. I mean, if they can sign them all and register them all, they're going to have a dynamic product on the field. I mean, let's be really real about that. I, and they had one before, to be honest with you. Um, not as good as this one, but they, they got. They're going to they're gonna be. They're going to be a force. But it's like, dude, this is not. This does not. This seems like it's got a real sketchy plan and does not seem financially responsible. If anything, I have a degree of pity about what's having. That. I mean, they went to New York City to launch an NFT. After the crypto absolute fucking, you know, purge that happened. It's like, that. this does not look to me like an institution that's in good health and seems to be making decisions based off of an immediate need to not feel the sting of decline that has come from poor financial management. Um, that's what it feels like to me. Luke, the UFC 279 card is really weak outside of the main event. Do you think the UFC is doing it on purpose to further damage Nate's image? No, quite the opposite. Uh, the card probably will be terrible. If you've got Nate Diaz versus Hamzat Chemaev at the top of your fight card, that's your main event, let's say, right? You basically don't need anything else. And of course you do because they have to, they owe a certain number of events to ESPN. They have to sell advertisements. Fighters need fights. Yes, of course. They're going to build a card behind it. I'm not in any way suggesting that they're not going to or that they shouldn't or something silly like that. What I'm trying to tell you is that fight, and I can feel it with the metrics that we've begun to put out, anything with like Nate and Hamzat content is just exploding like off the break. That fight, that fight, I don't know about the event, well, the event too because of them, but that fight it has that fight is nuclear red hot. I mean, there is an enormous amount of interest. If you know that, right, and you also have to make sure that 280 has a decent card and 281, this is how your talent is apportioned and here's who's available and everything else. By the way, just want to point out they're building cards now into October with 280, still no, and now 290, right? 280, or excuse me, what am I saying? 281 with MSG. Still no word on John Jones, right? So they don't know what they're going to do with that and what the all is going to happen. But with what they've got, they've got to make some clear choices. If you've got a fight that anticipated, that red hot, you'd be a fool to put something else behind it. I think it's just the UFC making a good play. Listen, I've got plenty of criticisms of the UFC. Plenty. But they're very good promoters. In large part, although not in totality, in large part, especially relative to other promoters, 
They have a much keener sense of what works and what doesn't, and their live show is excellent. I mean, those are three things you can typically say about them. And sometimes they make poor choices that look poor due to incompetence, and sometimes you find out it was not because they were trying to, like, you know, so they were trying to muscle someone in some direction or the other. But this doesn't feel like that to me at all. Got to tell you. Got to tell you. I'm sure Nate would love a supporting cast, you know, to help sell it, to make even more. I get it. You know, there's a lot of ways this could be different. But I don't think they're trying to stick it to him at all. I think they realize we have these other needs we have to fill in the calendar, especially if they're going to go on the road more, by the way, with fight night cards. You've got a main event that is nuclear hot. I mean, an absolute Chernobyl meltdown fucking hot. You don't need a whole lot of help. <laughs> you don't. I mean, let me just ask you. If all the other fights on that card suck, but you were planning to buy it, are you now not going to buy it? I, I realize that there might be a small segment of the population that goes, well, I don't know if I'm going to buy it because it's not worth my money. I think most people see Nate Diaz and they go check, and then they look across like Nate Diaz versus Hamza Tamayev. You know, you, this is this is appointment viewing. It's appointment viewing in my house. I'm imagining for many of you, you would agree that like when that fight happens, I'm clearing the fucking schedule. I need to see exactly what happens on that night, right? Doesn't fucking matter at all what's behind it. Would be nice. Yeah, it'd be great to have a UFC 205 where everything is, or a UFC 200 where, you know, you got guys in the Hall of Fame on the prelim card and shit. No, don't need it. Don't need it. Don't need it. Now, it's interesting I do agree that it creates for some complaints about a watered-down product. So if you wanted to say, well, shit, like I'm not getting much value for my money in the totality of the experience, I understand. Very fair criticism, especially if the entire card ends up sucking. Or, you know, most of it or whatever. But what I would say is the UFC is making these choices based on how they know their consumers will react. They're using consumer preferences to make these arrangements and you can like that or you can hate that but that's that's what they're doing so you are entitled to keep arguing that the cards could be watered down that however good the main event is it's inversely proportional to whatever else is on the card you can you can argue all that and you might well be right but at the end of the day is the UFC's banking on the idea that Nate versus Chimaev is sufficient by itself to sell everything especially when they have other calendar needs where they have to apportion who can do well on pay-per-view and how that has to be located, are they making um, a decision that is in their best interest by doing that? Yes, they are. At least in the short term. There's a long-term conversation about watered-down cards, but yeah. Uh, Luke, I recently watched an incredibly moving documentary that came out four days ago called CTE, The Disturbing Cost of Fighting. Someone pinged me and said I was in it. Um, I've, not, I've watched... Four minutes, it's five minutes maybe. Released through a YouTube channel called Mixed Martial Academic. It goes over CTE and boxing and football before halfway switching through to MMA. For MMA, the documentary features a variety of athletes, including Gary Goodridge and Spencer Fisher, among many others, in a very harrowing um, light, suffering from CTE. Have you met other fighters that you know have serious CTE at a relatively young age? Relatively young age... The one, I'll just say this, the ones that stand out the most to me are the ones that are like 50, 60 year old boxers. That's when I've seen it like undeniably. Riddick Bowe was the one I saw in 2011 and that was, that was, that was like, whoa. 
Um, that was really, really, really bad. Also, I'm grappling with my fandom of combat sports after watching fighters that I love not even be able to remember, excuse me, their kids' names. Do you struggle with the same thing? Um, I'll say this. I saw this video. Dana White was doing some uh, scrum or presser, I think, following Tuesday Night Contender Series. And he was saying, I'm getting old, and it's a little harder to watch guys do it. I, as I get older, it is a little harder to watch it in certain ways. But n I'm not really close to any kind of tipping point. I tend to think that, um, again, I've been through it a million times. I tend to think that provided that there is education long-term, provided we take more steps to secure a future for fighters that is um, far beyond what we're doing now, terms of potential insurance or brain treatment or again there's a there's a number of uh at least partial or helpful remedies i think if we're advocating for a world where that happens and we're making meaningful progress for it i tend to think that this is not something that either a the government has a compelling interest in in stopping although do they do have one in regulating it and um you know I acknowledge that there are very harmful effects to this. There is no safe way to fight. It's like smoking a cigarette. You can smoke a marble red. You can smoke a menthol. You can smoke a light. You can smoke whatever. It's still all bad for you. It's it, There's not a good, healthy thing to it. I think allowing people to engage in those kinds of behaviors in a regulated context is a typically a better kind of society. I believe that. So... That doesn't mean people need to watch the sport or like it or not advocate for better safety measures, but we're just talking about, is this a thing that should exist for people? Um, I don't have the same kind of moral hangups that other people do. I think a lot of these people sometimes come from very advantaged backgrounds. I think a lot of them come from very disadvantaged backgrounds. And I think that doesn't mean that like, oh, CTE is a great trade-off, but I just mean like, of, of, like if, but for boxing, or but for MMA, what would a lot of these guys do? Um, I think if it's hard to know exactly, but I think that a lot of them would happily make the trade that they're making. And I think if that's something they're okay with, and we're doing good education, and we're doing the kinds of things post-fighting to help them. And, and again, this is why you advocate for fighter pay. All the steps in between. Um, I think if we're doing those things, then you have to allow for a society where young men engage in this and women get engaged in this behavior <laughs> have I read Bisping's autobiography quitters never win not yet uh, this person writes it's a very good book with one of the highlights being the rather harrowing description of the post knockout amnesia Bisping experienced after the first Henderson fight yeah that was a really bad knockout I bet it was bad I mean Bisping's career has been marked by many things but the level of perseverance and dedication he had to a cause Truly one of the more remarkable things I've seen. Because, buddy, let me tell you, he had some setbacks that would have derailed a lot of people's careers. You know, and he and it didn't derail his. It was amazing. Uh, what makes these Dagestani Russian fighters so good? Does it have something to do with their genetics, their upbringing, or what? They seem to have one thing in common, and that's that they smash all their opponents. Specifically, what makes Megamed Ankalaev so good in a division full of killers technique? So um, I actually spoke to Ben Askren about this one time, asking him like why these guys from Dagestan are so good. And he had referenced a book that had written about this. Like, um, You often find that there can be worldwide sports 
and that there is like one tiny community, often sometimes in like island nations or very small countries that dominate on a global scale. And you're like, how is it possible? These fucking people who are, you know, it's not like they're not, sometimes it can be poor countries, although that tends to be a little bit less true. But in general, you know, you just wouldn't necessarily, like if, if, if the sport was just invented and then handed out to the world, you wouldn't expect this one group to be as dominant as they are, and they just end up being that way, and there's a lot of different examples of it. But what it really comes down to is they've done the thing where they've tested for genetics, and yes, there can be a component, particularly like with things like running for you know people who are potentially raised and born and lived in like parts of you know high climate East Africa or whatever. You know, that's just one example among many. Yes, there can be some kind of component, but really what it comes down to is cultural forces marshalling everything that needs to be marshaled. So, for example, if you grow up in Brazil, let's say, and let's talk about soccer, and I'm sure I'm not even getting half of this right, you grow up in a country where it is enormously celebrated. Perhaps the one thing that is celebrated even across any kind of political or familial or racial or income divides, it is majorly unifying, and that means many more kids are going to play it than they otherwise would in a country where it's not as celebrated in that way. And they're going to start much younger and there might not be other sports to pull them in different directions. And they're going to be more courts, more pickup games. There's going to be more knowledge share. There's probably more formal structures for talent identification and then pushing it up the food chain, like in every direction you would need it. And by the way, I'm sure the state provides some kind of resources in other ways and that club teams do and blah, blah, blah. Like there's just all of these forces bearing down on this culture which intertwines with state support which intertwines with benevolent to the extent you want to call it that um, uh, other forms of independent support and everything in between to create structures and and uh, basically just the infrastructure quite literally and then more in a more metaphorical way to make good players more routinely like are Brazilians genetically born more gifted for soccer than you know, name another country like, like, like uh, you know, I don't know, with, with a, part, parts of Europe, Germany or something. I realize the Germans have a very good team as well, but not really. There's probably not much of a difference in that regard, and Germany's probably much smaller by population anyway. Um, whatever whatever any, any kind of, you know, commensurate population center would be with, with Brazil, there probably isn't enough of a genetic difference to really highlight why they do so well relative to that. Really, it's just... It's it's every minute detail of the culture driving any kind of talent and recruitment and um, talent acquisition, development program, everything else, siphoning it into this large force by virtue of just how much people care about it. They start much younger. They do it much more thoroughly. You know, they get weeded out much earlier. Like there's just all these things that bear down on it, that cause it to do that. So you can pinpoint various systems in place. And, you know, UFC has tried – not the UFC, I'm sorry. Soccer in this country has tried to do that. For example, like when I was a kid, MLS academies or MLS teams didn't have academies. Now they all have academies because they're trying to get them earlier. Um, I don't know if a lot of people know this. This this may be no longer true, but it was true for some time that the most played sport across both genders – in the United States up until 16 was soccer and then people just let it go and then it ended up being something else. And so they're trying to bridge that gap and create a more tighter a tighter pipeline. Uh, but that's really it. Like, what's the answer for it? I suspect in that part of the, the country, or the part of the world, excuse me, 
that they start much earlier, that there's much more cultural pressure to engage in those kinds of acts that they, you know, for training or whatever, and that they have much more adherence to it rigidly, perhaps even part due to their Islamic faith that they don't engage in any kind of what I would call, you know, drinking should be everyone's choice, but it can be self-destructed. They tend to not do as much of that. But, you know, there's going to be all these different best practices that are handed down by virtue of this long-standing tradition in these places like that, particularly on the wrestling and the, even the striking side. Like, all of those cultural forces merge and push everything together. So you start earlier, you get better development, you get more of them, you get the bad ones weeded out more clearly. It just, it's this massively unifying and driving force where everything works in conjunction together. And... um that really seems to be the best answer, actually. Let's see. Um, where did I develop my journalism ethics? Jesus. From, uh, from the way you owned your three margarita madness to the dead wrongs. You're the only show in town holding yourself accountable. I mean, a lot of this is all self-taught, and I, I hardly represent myself as having figured all of this out, not not even close. But the one thing I would say is, and I heard this a long time ago, and it really stuck with me, and it's one thing I try, again, to various degrees of success, but I really try my best um, to own my more public failures. And these are not necessarily all major failures. I mean, everyone gets predictions wrong week to week. But I just feel like it's important to level with the audience. I really, really do. I really can't stand the guys that go and say a bunch of bullshit on a Friday before the big game. Then the big game happens and, you know, it doesn't happen at all like they thought. And then on Monday they just pretend like that, that, like it, they always knew it was going to go that way. Um, or conversely, if they have all these expectations about how the big game is going to go over the weekend and then they were right, they won't stop chirping about it. It just seems so dishonest. I would rather someone say, listen, I don't like him, but I at least have a decent sense of what he's about and I can make a judgment about why I don't like him because I have more I have more information to make that. Or conversely, that they may like it because they have more information. The best thing I feel like anybody can do in any kind of role like this is you gotta level with the audience. When you get it right, you know, you can pat yourself on the back if you want. Like, that's up to you. But when you get it wrong, dude, you got to tell them, man. And you got to be upfront with it. Like, when I did that thing on Sunday, the first thing I did was go right into it and try to, like, analyze, like, how did I get it wrong, you know? Because I did. Because I did. And listen, people are wrong. It's not the end of the fucking world. They make it the end of the world. Everyone makes it the end of the world by being like, well, it wasn't me, and then this is why, and, it, you know, trying to downplay it rather than just being, like, we all are fucking wrong. We all are wrong all the time. You're wrong about half the shit you say, so am I. We are. The, audi the audience can begin to pick up on the things where you may have your own blind spots that you have a difficult time auditing. You know, They're, they're going to be able to make better judgments if you are honest with them. They're going to trust you more if you're honest with them. And so it just builds, I think, a better community overall, man. Like, I just, I don't. I don't like being wrong. It sucks. I, I don't take great pleasure in it. It's not a thing I'm happy about. I try to learn from it and try to not be the next time. But all these other people I hear who just won't acknowledge when they're wrong, dude, it's, 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 a, it's a form of fraud if you ask me. you got to level with the audience, man. You have to. You have to. And again, um, 
you may not always recognize the ways in which you're wrong. It's obvious, like, if you write it down, hey, I think Amanda Nunes is going to lose to Pena. Okay, this is very easy to recall. But there might be ways in which you're wrong and you don't even know. But at a bare minimum, the shit you can account for, if it goes right, cool. You can, you can have your victory lap. I don't have a problem with it. But only if, when it goes wrong, you got to tell them too, man. And I'm sure, I'm sure I've not been as compliant in that as I need to be either. But I do think relative to a lot of people, I'm, me and BC try to be a little bit more forward with it so people can know your strengths, they can know your weaknesses, but they can at least uh, respect your honesty. If I say nothing you ever agree with, but you at least are like, well, he makes a reasonable effort at trying to you know, level with the audience, I'll take it. I'll take it. I'll take it. I think you know we're living in an age where there is like massive massive distrust in media not so much sports or you know MMA media which is very small but in media more generally what does it hurt to take steps that acknowledge you're a human that you are not going to get everything right dude I don't nothing I like <laughs> you have to think the shit that you say is biblical to not walk it back when it's wrong you have to think it's fucking nothing I say is biblical it's just my best assessment at the time, and I'm trying to get better at making assessments so that we have fewer incidents where I have to go back and be like, okay. you know. But like, they're going to happen. They're going to happen. So acknowledge it and then move the fuck on and try to do a good job the next time. I really believe long-term the audience will much more, much more respect you for that than some fucking phony like I'm always right bullshit act. And I, now, I guess that's partly wrong. I guess that's really wrong because you know, fucking Skip Bayless doesn't ever really acknowledge and he's as wealthy and you know, as successful as you can really be in this, in this sport. But like, I don't know, like, I don't want what he has. I don't want his rep. I don't want the negativity. I don't want any of that. I would rather, I would rather you guys know when me and BC get shit wrong. Sometimes small stuff is not that big a deal, but you know, Hey, you got shit wrong. Let the audience know that you know that too, so that you can also work through it. And honestly, that is what will make you better long-term. It will make you um, make fewer mistakes over the long long course, which is uh, sort of the point, you know. All right, let's see what we got here in terms of any kind of donations. Again, certainly under no obligation, but I don't want to um, not acknowledge them. Let's see what we got. All righty. Wouldn't imagine too many. Uh do you think artificial intelligence will gradually move us closer to socialism? <laughs> Considering the more sophisticated AI becomes the more automated jobs. I think, I will say this. I think there's a lot of you in this community that have right-wing views, which is cool. Like, do your thing. But there's a lot of, like, huffing and puffing over socialism. Y'all need to calm down. Y'all need to calm down. Okay. Luke, doesn't the UFC's treatment of fighters mirror the modern ultra-capitalism of companies like Uber? Capitalism runs rampant without unions. Uh, I don't know exactly. This is another loaded question, perhaps from the other side of the political dimension. There's a lot of differences between Uber drivers and UFC fighters. Uh, Uber drivers can be both Lyft drivers and Uber drivers at the same time. Like, you can't do that if you're a UFC driver. Listen... If you want to die, I would say the bigger issue is that there is a lack of monopolistic enforcement, monopolistic control from the federal government is what I would say. And this does not merely apply to this conversation, but about 
phone companies, airlines, movie chains, you name it. There is not nearly enough enforcement of um, predatory market practices from dominant actors who make it harder for the, the, the market to grow outside of their auspices. That's what I think. Do you think Cyril Ghosn is still a good fighter? Why would I not think he's a good fighter? I've begun to feel like there's a lack of community and family values in America. Unsure if this is accurate or inherently good or bad. I don't know what you what you mean by family values, but I do believe that there is uh, that the sense of community in the country has declined significantly. This could be a, uh, this is a very difficult question to answer or even attempt to answer in a situation like this. There is um, I, Robert Putnam wrote a book years ago, kind of previewing this called Bowling Alone. I think Putnam wrote it. You may want to check that out. Your elderly U.S. citizens will start 3WW. You mean World War III? God fucking hope not. I get asked this all the time. Opinion on Jordan Peterson. I don't know. He seems to be in a very sad state in his life. I hope he gets some help. Um, hope all is well. Uh, the fuck? Who is this? Oh, I remember this guy. Yes. Um, how do you think Dan Hornbuckle would have done in the UFC given a fair shake in his prime? Would have done okay. So Dan Hornbuckle uh, retired. In he fought in 2019. Jesus, can't believe that. But fought as early as 2006. He was in pride for a while. He fought Ben Askren. He got whooped. And uh, and then he had losses to, let's see, uh, Brent Wiebens. You guys may not remember Luis Santos. Then he had some fights in 2013 and so against Dennis Hallman, which he lost, Rio Chun, which he lost, Dominic Steele, and then Roger Carroll. And then he retired, it seemed like, and then came back five years later and won. I don't know if he's still trying to do that. Um, a Native American guy. He was pretty good. He was pretty good. I think he would have had a good career. Do I think he would have been a UFC champion or something? No. But he was talented, pretty athletic, had a decent overall game, good jujitsu, from what I can recall, some decent striking ability as well. I don't think he would have been like a champ or anything, but he would have had a good career. Update on the weight loss journey. Yeah, man. Like, I'm just in a really frustrated statement state. I, I don't, I don't want to go over this all the time on this chat. I'll just say, like, I need to see a sports uh, orthopedist or doctor or something. Because my left knee is really a fucking issue now. I can't even stand up out of a chair without it hurting and feeling like something's going to tear down the center of it. And so it has majorly impacted my ability to move. And um, so I'm watching what I eat, but I'm basically stuck in a rut because I can't do hardly anything. You're like, oh, didn't you go to the gym? Yes. I can ride the bike a little bit which without much pain. And I can do a lot of carries. I can carry something heavy and walk. So I'm trying to do everything and anything I can do... Um, to work around it, but it's a it's it's a problem. I was thinking I could get over it. It's a problem. It's a problem. Based on what happened with Oliveira last fight, what if Oliveira? Oh yeah, what if Figueredo missed weight against Moreno but won the fight? Who is what? There would still be no champion. He would lose it on the scales, and they would not be able to win it back. 
Thoughts on the Alex Jones case? Yeah, I got to tell you, don't have any sympathy for him. I think what he has done, he is, um, those chickens are coming home to roost. I think he is a, uh, a vile person. Um, he is having his day in court. So are the Sandy Hook plaintiffs. Wouldn't mind if they took him for everything he had, to be candid with you. I don't understand any of the sympathy for him. He seems quite clearly guilty of everything. And this is a civil trial, not a criminal, although there could potentially be criminal components to it based on the discovery of all of the two years of text messages that his lawyers apparently turned over to the plaintiff's attorneys without claiming a privileged information, which is a what-the-fuck moment if ever there was one. I don't have any sympathy for him whatsoever. Zero. None. And if they take him for everything he's worth, then he will have earned it. You know, to to he is hardly alone in, in having done what he has done. But, um, you know, when you hear about the lives of the Sandy Hook parents and how it's been impacted about harassment, being unable to visit the graves of their children, I could only imagine what it would be like to lose a child, then to have them gunned down, then to have the world told that it was fake, and then to be harassed about it by crazies, not in totality, but led in part by this gentleman, apparently. Um I zero sympathy for him whatsoever. When you have guests cover on MK, do they get paid? You mean like when we're interviewing fighters? No. Like when we have like Chuck come in studio to help do like pregame preview? Yes. Do you feel that promotions, capital owners, prey on working class desperation in order to exploit the entertainment value of their public maiming? Do you see yourself in perpetuating the system? Yeah, I probably have a degree of complicity in the whole thing. Um, but, you know, nothing is ever one thing. Does the media play a role in complicity of a system that potentially, under this person's view of it, it seems like, um, he's got a, a name that would indicate that he is could be trolling, which I won't read out loud. Does the media play a role in per potentially perpetuating some of this stuff? Yes, of course. Yes, they do. However... I also feel like, and my career has been affected badly as a consequence, speaking out against these unfair practices in a way to change them, in a way that would benefit this other system. If you didn't have media, you wouldn't have the other part too. It's it's not all good or all bad. So do I think I've participated in some kind of potentially exploitative system? Yeah, to, a discredit, to an extent I probably have. Mm -hmm. But I, I tend to get sleep at night because I feel like I make use of my time in a way that tries to uh, effectively given my role and my microphone, counter that. And I think that's that's a suitable trade for me. All right, last but not least. Um, thoughts of people attacking Kareem Zidane for previously working for an MMA org in Russia and is deemed a hypocrite. Well, he did it a long time ago, I think before he was able to put together a worldview where he better understood these issues. I It wasn't like he... This is my understanding since I've known him for a long time. I don't think he knew any of this shit. A lot of people get into MMA and they're like, wow, this is great, man. Like, this is amazing. And then you look under the hood and you're like, holy fucking shit. It is snakes on a plane up in this bitch. And then you begin to realize, whoa, 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 whoa. There's a lot going on here. So, like, if you'd like to call him a hypocrite, I suppose you could. But to me, it seems like he went through a process um, that we all went through, that I went through, where I and he and everyone else naively assume the world worked a certain way then you discover how well it worked and then uh, to me he'd be a hypocrite if he was still benefiting from it today or something like that 
first of all, he like he was calling fights for like M1, I think, way long time ago, very, very briefly. It's not like he's still doing that. It's not like he's even looking for those gigs. He's he completely had to me what I would what I would say is is someone who's had a legitimate religious conversion. I'm, it's not the same thing, but it's to me a sort of a way to explain it. Are they a hypocrite because they previously were, you know, I don't know, whatever they were doing in their previous life, and then they turn their lives over to God, whether it's Abrahamic religions or whatever. Are they a hypocrite? I mean, in the, on one way, I suppose you could argue that, but that seems to kind of miss the point. So, yes, did he previously work in a way that one could... It, it, you just you, To make that argument, you lack critical reasoning skills. I'll just say it kind of meanly like that. Like To make that argument, you lack critical reasoning skills. So whoever's making that argument, you can kind of tell like they're not really thinking this through very well. All right, let's do a quick rapid fire. Since I said I would do it uh, very quickly. Very quickly, rapid fire. Get in, get out. We'll do it very quickly. Let's do it. Here we go. Man, not one question about the fights this weekend. Zip. Can't say I blame you. Have you watched Barry on HBO? No, heard good things. Um, oh, there is one. If Jamal Hill stops Santos, can we reasonably say he's going to be a champ? Or at the very least, a title challenger. No, you can neither say reasonably those things. But you can say he probably will enter the top five-ish territory. Um, but there's more questions to answer than... It, and also, it would depend on how we beat Santos, too. But just the act of beating him, does that tell you he's going to be a champ or a contender for a title? Like a top contender? Not necessarily, no. Um, let's see. Uh, Luke, a couple months ago, you mentioned the U.S. is going down as a country. You would consider moving somewhere else for sure. If that was the case, where would you move? I have no idea. I don't even know where I would want to move. I would want to move. In a, I, 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 this is the other part, too. It's like I, I, I've had sort of my wife and I have talked about leaving D.C. We just don't know where to go. The two best options, given my career and the company I work for, would be New York or Miami. But there's a lot of problems with either of those for us. You know, New, Neither is cheap. And frankly, I'm not even sure Miami is cheaper than D.C. at this point. Like, it's pretty fucking expensive. I guess there's fewer taxes, so that'd be a bit of an issue you could save on. But you get the idea. Like, it's not some, you know, I'm not moving to, uh, you know, uh, Boise, Idaho or some shit. And New York is prohibitively expensive. Um, you know, so that doesn't solve anything. I, we don't really know where to go. And if I left to a different country, I don't know where I would go either, candidly. I would, that would be like, it would have to be really bad. Like, um, you know, I'm going to retreat somewhere. Wouldn't it be unpatriotic to move somewhere else when things get tough at your home? No. Things get bad enough, dude. You, you can have love for your country and realize it's a fucking mess and it's going to tear your family's life. Again, think about Venezuela. Okay, let's talk about Venezuela for a, sec for a second. You know, if you lived in Venezuela and you saw what was happening around you and then the guy who takes over your country from Chavez, Maduro... Was a, who was, by the way, used to be a bus driver, has, you know, no real understanding of how to manage government. Talks about seeing birds speak to him, you know, as like they're channeling Chavez. If you saw that, wouldn't you want to get the fuck out to help your family? What, what are you talking about? Like, that's just nonsense. That's a thing that people apply here that they would never apply anywhere else. If you lived in Venezuela and you saw what was happening there, 
and you didn't leave, you're a fucking dumbass. And again, now some people can't because they're they're financially destitute. That's a different thing. But let's say you were of means or something, and you, you think the patriotic thing is to help out the government in that case? The fuck you talking about? The government owes you, motherfucker. Like you don't owe them, except for taxes or whatever, you know, and and some level of compliance. But if if it's going to trash and it's not going to be saved in your lifetime, get the fuck out. Now, obviously, the U.S. is very far apart from Venezuela in, in any number of respects. But you know, when I was a kid, Venezuela was the richest country in South America. When I was at, when I was in college, it was the richest country in South America. Look at it. Have you seen Jordan Peele's Nope? I have not. Do you know what happened to Chael and Bellator? He used to be Bellator, a broadcaster for Bellator, and when he did, he would regularly cover Bellator on his YouTube channel. I don't often watch his YouTube channel. I don't know if it was a Bellator Showtime thing, or he signed with ESPN and UFC and they didn't allow it, or he just gave it up. I have no clue. It's a better question for him. But there's often either there's a Bellator UFC thing there, or there's a potentially a Showtime ESPN thing there. Or a combination of the two, and it becomes too hard to to get over. There's a lot of you know, like guys like Chael who are you know in in demand. They get caught up in all of these battles, and there's you have to make a choice eventually. Uh, let's see, a couple more. Let's see. Is there a scenario where a Hamzat win at 279 backfires against the UFC? For example, if it happens, I would say for it to backfire, like something would really badly have to happen to Nate. Like really badly. Um, which is possible. All right, two more. Would you rather keep your hair or have the physique of Shane Carwin but be bald? I'd ra- well, I don't like love my physique. In fact, I test it, but I'd still rather keep my hair for the time being. All right. Uh, one more. Uh, Luke, when you're retired someday in an assisted living center and overhear a convo about MMA, are you going to chime in and say, back in my day? God, I hope not. And if so, please complete the sentence. Dude, I've I've had a real revelation about all this, like, or I guess an ongoing one, perhaps. I don't know. Um, oh, you know what? I'll, I'll save that for a later date. But I have been so unmoored from what it means to be cool that it has given me a little bit of liberty. But the answer is, which MMA fighters have the coolest tattoos? This guy goes, I think Colby's are pretty underrated. Uh, oh, the American flag cover-up that he has? I love Dustin's. Um, Sean Brady's got great tattoos. Megan Anderson has very good tattoos. Uh, TJ Dillashaw has really good tattoos. Um, the leg sleeve of Shane Burgos is excellent. Um Who's got a good? Who, I saw a back piece of the day that was really good from someone. Um, not in MMA, but um, Andy Ruiz has good tattoos now. Like he paid some money for him. Like, and when I say good tattoos, technically applied, certain style. Uh, let me give you one more. Who had it the other day? I saw. I can't remember who had a good back piece, but those ones will get you started. Megan Anderson and TJ Dillashaw probably had the best black and gray work 
in the sport. Oh, um, Dylan Dennis has really good tattoos. It's weird. The zone blows him up constantly, which I don't seem to understand, but whatever. Uh, he has his sleeve. His Japanese sleeve is like fucking primo. It's one of the best ones I've ever seen. Also, Marvin Vittori has a good uh, sleeve as well. So does Rakic. All those guys have pretty good sleeves. All right. That's it for me. Thank you so much for watching. Two in a week. I know it's a lot, so I really appreciate it. This will be up by tonight, as you guys know. MK is tomorrow. I am so grateful that you guys watched. Subscribe. We got some more stuff coming your way. And, uh, yeah. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Um, you guys are the best. I'll talk to you soon. And let me pull this up. Where the fuck is this thing? Uh, I got to go back into my YouTube studio. Hold on one second. Real quickly. Before I just say stupid shit. Well, it's a bit late for that now, isn't it? Uh, let's go into... All right. Now I can get out of here. Okay. So, thank you guys so much for watching. I greatly appreciate it. I will talk to you soon. And uh, until next time, stay frosty.